Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation, a series of lectures in which Jeremy Hardy hurls himself at the issues of the day like a great flouncing fusspot. In tonight's lecture, Mr. Hardy explains how to be a man. Hello, and let me be the first to wish you all a very happy new year, and welcome to this new series of lectures, which, owing to the restructuring of the BBC, is being broadcast from a Group 4 security ambulance as it delivers disruptive pupils to grant-maintained prisons in Virgin Megastores up and down the Anglian Water Authority area. (laughs) And because of the changes to the BBC's commissioning process, the programme is no longer a light entertainment radio show, but an irreverent and often harrowing costume panel game in which rival teams of Austin inspectors share a flat together with hilarious consequences which some viewers may find disturbing. <laughs> Listeners watching the programme on CD-ROM may experience loss of motor skills. <laughs> and younger listeners may find the programme middle-aged in tone and presentation, but they don't know they're born and a spell in the cadets were doing them the power of good. <laughs> but on with the show, and before I shoot a steel bolt into the meat of the programme, let me introduce some actors who will be simulating real-life events as if they were actually being properly paid like they would be on telly, Debbie Isaac and Gordon Kennedy. Now, many people ask me whether Gordon is the same Sarah Kennedy who presented What's My Lottery with Ike and Tina Turner. Gordon, was that you? I'm afraid it was, Jeremy, yes. So what's Ike and Tina like, then? Is she the same antiseptic robot we all imagine her to be? I'm afraid I can't answer that question because of the unwritten law of show business. Be careful what you say about people on the way up or the way down, because on radio, you must be one or the other. Now, another feature of this series is that you'll be able to respond to anything you hear using our interactive Jeremy Hardy letterline. Alternatively, listeners can call Radio 4's Tuesday morning phone-in programme, call whoever's available. (laughs) Incidentally, tonight's programme is something of a first in radio as we are joined by listeners to Taliban FM in Kabul. Normally at this time, Taliban FM listeners can hear the woman's magazine programme Stay at Home and Just State, You Foul and Stinking Temptresses. (laughs) Presented by Tristan Witchfinder of the Daily Mail. <laughs> so we hope the Carvel housewives won't be too disappointed by this change in their usual programming. So, on with the programme, which you may have guessed from the title is called How to Be a Man. First, what is a man, and what has he got? Well, in order to be a man, you must have only one X chromosome, by which I mean not something that used to be a chromosome and is now something else, <laughs> but a chromosome which is actually shaped like an X. The essential difference between a man and a woman is that a man orders a dessert and a woman gets someone else to order a dessert so that she can have some of theirs. (laughs) But in terms of genetics, females have two X chromosomes and males have an X and a Y. By implication, women are wholly female and men are only half male. But of course, the conventional wisdom is that we all have a female side. Men talk about getting in touch with their female side as if it can be done through an agency or by scouring parish records. In the post-war period, we have all gone in for a lot of amateur psychology, but we all like to think we're a lot more complicated than we are. Rather than admit that we're just grumpy, we'll try and find a book about IBS, or Irritable Bastard Syndrome. (laughs) And it's much easier to believe that you have difficulty expressing your emotions than that you don't have any, or you have some but they're the wrong ones. (laughs) 
The idea that a man has two sides to his personality, one male and one female, is based on stereotypes of what is considered masculine and feminine behaviour. Imagine if these stereotypes really did coexist in one person. Evening, doll. I'll have a pint of lager and a dry white wine chaser, please. Okay. Had a busy day? No, not really. I was going to buy some metal to build a ship, but I've been crying all day. Oh, what's wrong? Oh, just my hormones. Hey, what's you doing there, pal, eh? You nearly spilt my chardonnay. Sorry, mate. That's 270. Thank you. Clumsy bastard. I would have chinned him, but he had the saddest blue eyes, you know? Are you going illegal dog fighting again tomorrow, or are you still worried it makes you look fat? Oh, don't. I'm absolutely enormous at the moment. It's these antidepressants the doctors put me on for my prostate trouble. So any tips for the derby? Aye, I've got a monkey riding on an each-way accumulator at 18 to 1. It's the one with the pink jockey. I don't know why, I'm just really psychic about things like that. <laughs> anyway, I better make a move. Some of the lads from the lodge are coming around to watch Selma and Louise. See you, love. Yeah, see you, Dave. Love to the missus. <laughs> When men say they are trying to get in touch with their female side, they mean they want to be able to show emotion, to cry, for example. Actually, if you do want to learn to cry, the best way is to wait for a bank holiday when all the shops are shut and you've got no food in the house but the arse end of a loaf of not very fresh bread. Toast it, butter it, preferably using real butter, but a substitute called something like, heavens for Betsy, are you sure this is a butter substitute? <laughs> or even, bugger me, this is Marge, will do. Having toasted and buttered your own slice of bread and having first checked that your floor is really filthy, start to walk out of the kitchen with your plate slightly tilted so that the toast slides off and lands face down on the ground. You will then weep as never before. <laughs> but when men talk about their female side, it shows that they've fallen for the old idea of what a real man is, someone who can map read and grip branches with his feet. <laughs> The secret fact is that all men have a hard time keeping up the front of being proper men, but none of us are prepared to admit it to each other. Secretly, we're all sick of having to know all this obligatory bloke shit about drill bits and self-assembly. <laughs> none of us really care about any of it, but we have to feign interest and knowledge because we're men. I'm sure that's the appeal of things like camp and drag. They're ways of escaping that. Not many men do cross-dress, but all men feel the lure of camp in some way. If a man ever finds himself in momentary possession of a curly blonde wig, he is unable to resist the temptation of holding it to his head and asking his mates how he looks. <laughs> Any man who does what he considers to be an imitation of a gay man will assume a camp voice immediately, in a way which is oddly natural to him, considering he says he can't do accents. <laughs> All men seek remission from their traditional role, so gay men shouldn't have the monopoly on camp. Even for one day, every man should have the right to sit in front of a Jean-Claude Van Damme video saying, What's she like? <laughs> Incidentally, I noticed that emergency vehicles have become very camp. Fire engines, for example, used to be very boisy. Ding-ling-ling, ding-ling-ling, the plucky traps of the London Fire Brigade do their best to douse the flames with Hitler's bombs rain down on plucky London. Then they went through an infantile playground phase of no, 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 no. Now we have these screamingly camp new sirens, fire engines scream past the house going <laughs> Look at the fire on that. <laughs> Mind you, with those curtains it's a blessing, I think. 
But I digress. Most of the time, men pretend to be proper men. For example, when a man has to deal with pain, he can only react in an extreme way. If he touches a hot saucepan lid, he can't say, Ouch, that really hurt my fingertips. He either has to completely ignore the discomfort or yell, ah! I've only burnt my buggering arm off, haven't I? By the way, I should say that buggering arm in this sense is a swearing sense and not a James Herriot sense. <laughs> anyway, this overblown outrage creates the impression that the man is not so much in pain, but indignant that pain has invaded his territory. Marking territory is very important to men, which is why very little of our urine makes it into the toilet bowl. <laughs> It's always fascinating me that women are outraged by men leaving the seat up when they urinate. It's really the men who leave the seat down when they urinate they should worry about. <laughs> but I digress. The fact is that women have the higher threshold of pain, and when they get married, men carry them over it. <laughs> On the other hand, men can't take pain at all. But given that we have such a low threshold of pain, it seems odd that we have traditionally given ourselves roles in which we're likely to experience it. Contact sport, DIY, aerial dog fights, and supervising barbecues. <laughs> the barbecue gives a man the opportunity to let his imagination take flight, since he's not having to use any culinary skills, but does get to hold sharp things and operate in an area of some danger. No, darling, you go and worry your fluffy head over the salad. I'll take care of this. Get back, you fools! It's a barbecue! Any one of these sausages could explode at any moment! But it seems odd that men controlled society for hundreds of years and preserved for themselves the privilege of dying in battle, for example. Why didn't we make the women do it? But it's too simplistic to say men dominate society. Rather, it is the case that a few men dominate society and they order all the other men around. Norman Schwarzkopf didn't tell his men, you stay here and get on with your sewing, I'll handle this. <laughs> Kings, politicians and generals tend to keep well away from the danger zone. Power has more to do with money than gender. People are very uncomfortable with the idea of women in powerful positions, especially when they do terrible things. Such women contradict both the Victorian myth of woman as subservient wife and the 80s myth of woman as half-earth mother, half-dolphin. <laughs> In the 1980s, some people would argue in all seriousness that Margaret Thatcher was culturally a man just because she was a whiskey-swilling oafish philistine. <laughs> but what were the uniquely male qualities she displayed? There is no record of her lifting a cheek to fart. <laughs> and she doesn't fit the traditional role of the patriarch. She never told her son to sling his hook for bringing disgrace on the family. Instead, one imagines her listening to his troubles going to the jar on the mantelpiece, slipping 700 grand into his hand and saying, don't tell your father. <laughs> the horrors she inflicted upon this country were a result of her deficiency as a person, not as a woman. But all women politicians are seen as in some way assuming a man's role, as indeed are all prominent women. These days we hear a lot about modern women having to juggle their careers and their femininity, especially in commercials. I'm a woman of today, a woman with deadlines. That's why I need a deodorant that allows me to use the executive lift with confidence. And so that when I get home from a day of being a high-powered ball breaker in shoulder pads, I don't smell too manky for the man in my life, without whom I am nothing. 
I needed a pillatory cream that lets me get on with my job. How can I read the weather if I know some of my pubes poke outside my laundry? I need to menstruate discreetly and soak away the cares of a day spent in a man's world in a foam bath that won't dry my skin, while my microwave heats through a bag of dreary locale chicken stuff in a slightly spicy sauce. And if people find out I get dandruff, I'll mess my kex. That's why I use foam clear colonic spray from Lithosome. But all the mythology about male and female roles is still with us. It is still widely considered more natural for a woman to look after children than a man. Now, this can be nice if you are a man looking after children. If a man is struggling on a bus with a baby, a buggy, and a couple of bags of shopping, old ladies will look pityingly and give their seats up, assuming that your wife is either dead, mad, or in prison. <laughs> A woman trying to do the same thing will in all likelihood be stared at with the same detached fascination your cat would have if he were being murdered on the living room carpet. <laughs> Old ladies are overwhelmed to see a man looking after a baby. They say, aren't you good, you men? And daddy's little girl, eh? It does get annoying when your child is several months old and someone asks, oh, have you changed a nappy yet? It's tempting to say, oh no, are you supposed to do that? <laughs> I thought she was starting to smell. <laughs> And if a man stays at home to look after children while his partner works, it is still considered a role reversal, as if the natural order has been turned on its head. Only if the man has lost his job and the woman earns a million pounds a second as a hospital administrator does the Daily Mail news about whether it's starting to become socially acceptable. Although the government has provided incentives to men to become house husbands by abolishing British industry. <laughs> But now we hear that children in Barking and Dagenham do better in their exams if their mothers are at home. Presumably during exams, mum must sit by the phone with the textbooks and the kids call them on the mobiles when they go to the toilet. <laughs> and we're all told that teenagers like to be able to go home and discuss their schoolwork with their mother. Why is it then that no one between the ages of 13 and 20 shows any desire to say a blind word to either of their parents about anything? <laughs> When did an adolescent ever say, Mum, Dad, maybe we could set aside some time on the weekend to talk about photosynthesis? <laughs> Besides, if working mothers gave their jobs up, there'd hardly be any teachers left, would there? <laughs> and the fact is that social stereotypes are abolished and reinstated as the needs of the establishment change. The idea of women not working is a very recent one. When industry and agriculture required it, women laboured on farms, in mills and in factories. Children were cared for by grandparents. That tradition increasingly fell out of favour as it became apparent that grandparents feed children on nothing but Quality Street. <laughs> the idea of women purely as homemakers was a Victorian invention, like high collars and Sir Peregrine Worsthorn. <laughs> but once the Great War started, women were needed in the munitions industry. This left men free to get on with the job of walking pointlessly toward machine gun fire only stopping the fighting briefly to play football on Christmas Day. <laughs> if it had been the women in the front line, British and German troops would have met up in no man's land, all gone to the toilet together, and the war would have been off. <laughs> Even today, we tend to see war as a male thing. It seems odd, therefore, that the Royal Air Force has expelled a number of lesbian officers since the stereotyped view of a lesbian is that of someone rather male. Of course, lesbians are not like men at all, but they do tend to be very practical, as they've never relied on a man. A lesbian fighter pilot is not going to run out of petrol somewhere and phone her husband and get him to come and pick the tornado up and then call herself a minicab, for example. <laughs> 
campaigners for equality have tried to stop the armed forces from being a heterosexual and male preserve. Women and gays have as much right as anyone else to be salaried killers. <laughs> but to my mind, the question is not why shouldn't women join up, play rugby, be ordained or join the Garrick Club, but why on earth would anyone want to? Just because something is the preserve of men, that doesn't mean anyone should aspire to it. No one would claim the right to baldness, tufts of hair sprouting from the ear, or external gonads at kicking height. <laughs> On the other hand, not fighting for equal rights is to give in to discrimination. At the time when women were chaining themselves to railings and being force-fed in Holloway prison, it would have been somewhat crass to say... Yeah, but what's the point of universal suffrage? Voting's never going to change anything. <laughs> Although, if the suffragettes had known that 80 years later Anne Widdicombe would be prisons minister, they might have thought <laughs> that a point. <laughs> but in taking on roles which were traditionally male, are women becoming more like men? Women doctors are not like men doctors. One couldn't imagine them behaving like this. Right, what seems to be the trouble? Well, I've got this pain in my back. Right, well, pop your togs off and I'll feel your penis. <laughs> All right. Um, I, I did get hit by a forklift truck at work. I, I don't know if that's got anything to do with it. No, you're probably just depressed. Right, let's see. Do you notice any swelling at all? No, but I'm trying to think of football. Um, is, it, is, is that necessary for backache? Always worth checking. Over 35, are you? Yes. Hmm, well, I'd recommend you have it removed. Children? Two. I'll book you in for it then. Might as well whip these off as well to save trouble later on. Do you find yourself becoming listless and emotional? No. I'm going to put you on knees. They'll just make you feel a little less tense and stop you waking up in the morning. Are you clumsy or forgetful? No. Well, take these and you will be. <laughs> of course, I'm stereotyping male doctors. Most of them are now young, sensitive, handsome men with freshly washed and styled hair so they can get a slot on daytime television. <laughs> But women are viewed as becoming more masculine if they take on certain jobs. Some people think that women gladiators on telly look like men, but this is not true. They look like male gladiators, who do not look like men, but armadillos in vests. <laughs> women enjoy a certain amount of equality in gladiators, but is the programme a modernised recreation of gladiatorial conflict or an attempt to turn pillow fighting into a recognised sport? There is a deliberately pantomime element to the aggression, and yet contestants do seem quite traumatised by it. They try to speak in the stilted clichés of sportsmen and women, saying things like... Oh, well, it was a tough game, but I knew if I could get past Hunter, I could create some room for myself. When written all over their horror-struck faces is... That big bastard really hurt me with that spongy thing! <laughs> By the way, why is it that black gladiators have to have names like Nightshade, Saracen and Shadow, and yet the white ones are not called Pasty and Tipex? <laughs> Milk bottle and uncoordinated. <laughs> and actually, male and female gladiators are not presented in the same way. When each gladiator has to project an on-screen persona, a male is supposed to look scary and a female glamorous, albeit both fail rather tragically. <laughs> Although I believe some men are turned on by women fighting. A fight between two women even has a special name, a cat fight, which implies not a proper brawl, but a lot of scratching and hissing, whereas a man fights fairly, putting his fists up like an honourable pugilist and then getting kicked in the gonads. <laughs> but why would men find it sexy to see women fighting? Perhaps wrestling in mud is seen as a simulation of foreplay, in the same way that rugby is a simulation of buggery. <laughs> 
The media also seem fixated with women being violent. Local papers are full of stories about girl muggers ever since a few young women attacked Liz Hurley. But what woman wouldn't want to attack Liz Hurley and take all her money? <laughs> Meanwhile, wife battering is viewed with equanimity. Violent husbands like Paul Gascoigne always say they need help. What help does he want? A couple of blokes with baseball bats to come round and finish her off. <laughs> and it may be that there are occasional instances of wives beating up husbands, just as it's conceivable that gays sometimes go around straight bashing, or Asian youths burst into fish and chip shops at closing time and call all the staff Kipling. But <laughs> let's get these things in proportion. Debbie, before I continue, I want to ask you something. I was interested to find out a woman's view, because I think women are marvellous, like all oppressed people. Now, <laughs> out, of, out of me and Gordon, who would you say is more of a man? It depends what you mean. Gordon is bigger and stronger than you. On the other hand, he's also nicer than you. <laughs> well, don't you find him to be a typically macho, oppressive Scotsman? Oh, Jeremy, that's a complete stereotype, you big woman. Mm. <laughs> now, let us discuss how to be a new lad. New ladism had its origins in the political backlash against feminism. Sometime in the 1980s, British men started to say... I believe in equality, but now the pendulum swung too far the other way. But what are the excessive rights that women are supposed to have accrued? They're still underrepresented in all well-paid jobs. They were given equal voting rights in 1928, but it's not as if they've now got two votes. They live longer than men, but they always have, and they need to because they take longer to get ready. <laughs> Women still face far more discrimination than men and more sexual harassment, and yet any case of a man being discriminated against or harassed gets wall-to-wall -wall coverage. Gordon, can you say you've ever had any trouble with a stalker? Oh, only first thing in the morning. Exactly. <laughs> the, the tabloid letters pages are full of correspondence from men saying, the other day a woman in the supermarket trying to get past me said, excuse me, love. And yet when I expose myself to women in the park, people accuse me of being sexist. <laughs> Case of double standards, I think. But to be a new lad, you have to be more sophisticated than that. Ideally, you will have a degree. You must believe that women deserve the same rights as men, but crucially, you also believe that they already have them. And thus you think it's now all right to treat women as sex objects again. They say, I'm not sexist, I love women. What they love is looking at pictures of women in magazines, but there are magazines for people who love trains, and in them the trains are pictured standing in a dignified fashion, not sprawled in sand wearing chainmail briefs and a wet nightie. <laughs> but the new lads would say there's nothing sinister about their ethos, it's all an open celebration of manhood with all its flaws. They stress men's weakness because it's likeable to be vulnerable. That's why they want to show that football is not an interest but a passion. They want it no that they don't attack the other fans when their team does poorly. They cry. They don't chant. You're gonna have a nasty accident. They chant. I'm gonna have a few people over to dinner later. And Fiona's an amazing cook. It's kind of an open house thing. We could really rip the piss out of each other's teams. And I just thought it might be a laugh. You love my mate Joss. He supports Millwall too. <laughs> 
If you don't like football but still want to be a new lad, the only thing you can do is use the C word a lot. But this only works if you are educated enough to be familiar with the argument against using it. All new lads defiantly use the C word as a term of abuse because it is calculated to annoy feminists. I try not to use it because I agree with the feminist argument that it degrades women to use part of their anatomy as the foulest insult in the language. I do agree with that argument. In principle. <laughs> But how are you supposed to drive? <laughs> It's a dilemma never addressed by the highway code, isn't it? <laughs> And the trouble is, it sounds more like an insult than a part of a woman. It's a nasty, vicious little word. It, it carries no female imagery in its sound. A word should conjure up some sort of a picture. And when I hear it, I just see Paul Gascoigne. <laughs> But I try not to use it if I know women will be offended. And that is not hypocrisy, that is consideration. What we used to call politeness. In fact, what now gets called political correctness is really just good manners. This leads me on to how to be a gentleman. I'm not talking about being a gentleman in the feudal sense, but simply in terms of having manners. Sexists say you're not allowed to be a gentleman anymore because it's sexist. But it is only sexist if you're only a gentleman toward the sex which you aspire to entering. If you're polite to everyone equally, you're being a perfect gentleman. But I shall now move on to discuss how to be a positive male role model. By this, we usually mean a father, which I covered in two programmes last series, thus leaving myself stuffed in this one. <laughs> the one observation I have made since the last series is that I'm not a proper dad. A proper dad is a slightly mysterious and elusive figure who disappears for two years and then comes back to give you the helmet of a German he's killed. <laughs> I decided early on that I did not want to be a remote figure from my child. Consequently, she treats me with absolute contempt. <laughs> Fathers who don't see much of their kids are much more impressive. They're rather like uncles. Uncles rarely spend much time with kids, so they make a supreme effort when they do. <laughs> my, haven't you all got big? Let me see, who's this big girl? I'm your sister-in-law. So you are. And this must be Rover. Peter. Peter, yes. And Tiddles. Lucy. Louise, yes. And over here is little... Who's this? That's Stuart. You brought him. He's your son. Is he indeed? Well, Uncle Charlie wanted to give you all a present, but he didn't want to get you the wrong thing. So, here's £4,000, but you must share it. Now, who wants a Chinese burn? <laughs> If you spend a lot of time with a child, you're not very remarkable to them. I especially notice my inadequacy at the swimming baths. All the proper dads are sending their kids into a delighted, squealing frenzy, chasing them through the water, saying, I'm the big crocodile and I'm going to eat you all up. And I'm sitting on the side with my daughter saying, so is there anything about swimming you'd like to discuss at all? <laughs> anyway... The point I'm avoiding is that I don't really have any advice about being a positive male role model. But I'm not convinced it matters anyway. Even the most splendid role model is no guarantee of anything. After all, Michael Portillo's father fought against the fascists in the Spanish Civil War and yet somehow managed to bring up a little right-wing scumbag. <laughs> 
let us, in the short time remaining, introduce a new feature of the programme, which I shall call Ask Mr Hardy. I shall be inviting the studio audience here at Broadcasting House to ask me anything they like. Now, Jill Abram there will be running around with the microphone. If anybody has a question, anything I've said in the lecture, anything else at all, gardening tips... <laughs> Yes, you have, could we have your question, please? Are you a real man or a new man? Um, well, I am a real man, in as much as I am not a hologram. Um, I think it's very difficult to be a man now, but in as much as we have to face certain things that have, that have happened. Like, for example, masculinity is in question because our sperm count... The sperm count of the Western man is now down to a half of what this is caused by oestrogen in the water, which is your fault. <laughs> and it's very hard for a man to accept the fact there could possibly be anything wrong with his sperm, other than the fact that it's very hard to clean off a suede jacket. <laughs> I think it would be true to say that I'm an old man. Because, um, new man sounds like new labour. New labour with a blue-white softness I've never known before. <laughs> Not so much a party, more a few people round to dinner. We have a... <laughs> Comrade at the back. Yes, we have a man. Yes? Uh, did your father ever offer you some advice that you might like to share with us? My father offered me a very, very precious piece of advice, in fact, which really changed my life and can change the life of anybody here tonight. But sadly, that's all we have time for. <laughs> The clock has beaten us once again, although the clock has only beaten us in a firm and loving way that's not done us any real harm. <laughs> so thank you for listening. My name has been Jeremy Hardy. Good night. Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation was written and performed by Jeremy Hardy and also starred sultry temptress Debbie Isaac and tarty seamstress Gordon Kennedy. The producer figure was David Tyler and the programme was a positive production for the BBC, which is an equal opportunities employer with women and even black people working in the kitchens.